0: The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan on News Talk. Well, for the Thursday interview this week, we're joined by independent Senator Tom Clonan. And of course, Tom Clonan will be well known as um, former Army officer and security analyst Tom Clonan, but he's coming up on his first year anniversary of uh, being elected to the Senate. And we will talk about that and we'll talk about obviously a lot of other things. But I think, Tom, first of all, you're very welcome. Thank you. I think the logical place to start, because it is what people will most associate with you, is your time in the Defence Forces, um, where you
1: were... How long was your, your full duration in the uh, Defence Forces? 11 years. So Yeah, so... And I did all of the things that you expect uh, an army officer to do. So, um, originally from Finglas, uh, went to the Christian Brothers in Finglas, did my leaving cert, got into Trinity, which was a huge privilege, and then when I graduated... I applied for and got into the cadet school uh, in the military college and was commissioned as an officer, served overseas in Lebanon, 95, 96. Very violent deployment, um, Operation Grapes of Wrath, uh, launched by the Israelis. And we witnessed at first hand the slaughter of hundreds of innocent Lebanese men, women and children. Um, I went to Bosnia in 96 as an election supervisor for OSCE, Organisation Security Cooperation Europe, um, just at the end of that conflict, the very tail end. The Fingless Trinity
0: Defence Forces route there would be, I think, a series of stereotypical assumptions that people might make where they might say, well, if you're coming from an area that has a a reputation for being not the wealthiest in the country, you get yourself in among the great and the good and the elites in Trinity. Surely the next step is investment banking, stockbroking, interprofessional services, the law, and make your fortune. Why the Defence Forces? I'd never heard of any of those
1: things. (laughs) No, I mean, look, I grew up in Finglas, went to the Christian Brothers in Finglas and Ballygall, but uh, and I certainly went to school with lots of boys who came from very disadvantaged backgrounds, but I didn't come from a disadvantaged background. My dad was a guard um, and we had a very secure kind of privileged uh, gro- um, upbringing, as it were. And like my dad, like so many of that generation um, just wanted us, there, was, there were five of us. And so my dad, as a guard, you know, he had his own home. And the modest ambition to educate his children. So we we all went to university. Now I was the first person in the family to go to Trinity. And you I, would have been
0: pre-free fees though, wouldn't you? There was still a fee? Yeah, so my dad,
1: my dad would have had to, to pay, pay the fees and do a lot of overtime. And Which is no small things. thing, particularly on a guard salary. It's not it, easy. Yeah, you know, with, with five of us as well. <laughs> and actually when I joined the army then, because when the army will send you to university and pay for your fees and you're actually paid... And when I went, when I got into the army, my dad was so, I could see the exasperation. He was saying, why didn't you do this before you got into college? But look. But why did you do it at all? uh, So my dad was a guard. My grandfather was a guard. My brother uh, was a naval officer. um, He's now director of the Coast Guard. um, So there was a a, a strong tradition of uh, public service in the family. And my grandmother, who lived with us until I was 10 years old, uh, my grandmother was in Cumannamon in uh, and she, 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 she taught in School of Regia uh, from 1919 to 1966. It was the first, Ireland's first Gael school set up by Louise Gavin Duffy and others. So she was attached to the South Dublin Brigade of the IRA. And between 1919 and 1922, she was involved in a lot of um, firebombing attacks on police stations in South County Dublin. That's where they operated, uh, right out to Bray and Shankill and uh, Greystones. Uh, Bolt and glass. They set, basically their, their modus operandi was to set fire to police stations and they also carried out abductions, kidnappings, extortion, rackets. Um, so she was a typical woman, uh, multitasker, a school schoolteacher by day and an arsonist and a freedom fighter at night. So I knew that women had played a very active role in the liberation of the state. I knew that women had played an active role in, in the fighting or in the, in, in the full spectrum of operations, that they weren't there making tea, and sandwiches uh, you know they were actually at the at the sharp end of of that conflict and right out into the 1920s so my my on, gran- I, I still don't understand the fact of having a close female relative who was
0: a successful arsonist doesn't still yet explain why when you get your degree from Trinity you
1: go the army well real quick I was a very idealistic young young guy and Um, You know, the troubles were at their height, 1988, 87. I mean, we had the murder of those two British Army corporals, Corporals Howe and Wood, when they drove into a funeral cortege in West Belfast and Andersonstown. And, you know, the rest of Europe was opening up. The Berlin Wall was coming down. But Ireland, you know, we had this reputation internationally as being terrorists. And I'm sure you recall, Anton, back in those days, as students going to work in London, you'd be searched. When you arrived in the UK, you'd be searched before you left. Um, But there were times in the late 80s that you had to look over your shoulder before you could express a particular political opinion. And so I thought as a young guy that if I joined the Defence Forces, Ogligna Heron, that I could contribute to a society where there was no <laughs> there was no violence and, you know, you'd have freedom of speech. So I joined for the most naive and idealistic reasons. And and people probably don't remember, but this was way before the ceasefires and the Good Friday Agreement. Ireland was a basket case economically, the World Bank was gonna foreclose a national debt, we'd mass immigration. And we had a major security problem on the island. And so as a young guy I wanted to be a part of that response to, to violence. As you look
0: back at it now or in the moments of quiet reflection, which are the the episodes, which are the events, which are the aspects of your time in the Defence Forces that occur in your mind most often?
1: Well, I often dream about the cadet school that I'm back in there and that was really tough. There were 60 of us at the start and 41 of us made it through the training and were commissioned. And uh, I was the smallest, I was the oldest, I'd say I was the grumpiest um, but I came sixth in the class, which for me was a, such a, an achievement. But I still dream about the cadet school and I still think I'm in there. I wake up and I go, thank God. Uh, the, and then obviously the next thing would have been um, serving overseas in Lebanon. That was that was a real uh, seismic moment in my life, just to, to witness the killing of, of innocent civilians and particularly children. Um, when you say witness it, what did you see? Well, essentially... When we arrived in the area of operations, m- most Irish soldiers will have a quiet tour of duty. Um, we didn't. Um, we arrived in the autumn of 1995 and Hezbollah began to step up their attacks on the Israeli positions that were at the edge of our area of operations. And they also began to fire rockets indiscriminately into northern Israel, into places like Kiryat Shmona and Netanya, and so on. And they were killing Israeli civilians, uh, including children. And so the Israeli government decided to respond with what they called a a punitive operation called Grapes of Wrath. And they declared all of South Lebanon a free fire zone. And they saturated the area with with, um, shelling, missile strikes, um, airstrikes, helicopter gunship attacks, everything. And... So we we found ourselves then caught between Hezbollah on the one side and the Israeli military on the other. Not a nice place to be. And we, we effectively became human shields. Uh, to try. So we couldn't stop the killing. But I think our presence there certainly limited. As witnesses, the eyes and ears of the international community certainly I think curbed what might otherwise have now, happened.
0: Can, can you give me a sense of a of what a day in that kind of environment is like? Because it's it's hard to tell are you at a camp on the outskirts
1: and action is over there and when it quiets you go no, and see what has happened? You're, you're in the thick of it. And you know the Defence Forces I, I, and I mean I was a press officer for the Defence Forces for two years but I would say the defense forces is very poor at telling its own story. Um so I was in a position called Alayton, which was in a hilltop village. It was a fortified post reinforced by sandbags, blast walls, barbed wire and the shelling was all around us. But we had to go out. I was I was part of a group a group called the Battalion Mobile Reserve, which was like the quick reaction force. It was the we responded to, you know, armed confrontations at checkpoints or abductions or and essentially, all of the little houses in, t- in, in in the villages and towns in our area of operations were shelled. So the unit history and the UN history of of the time records that in the three to four weeks, March to April, nineteen ninety six, there were something like twenty, thirty thousand separate incidents of you know direct hit shelling,s and we were in an. But can you that. describe what
0: you personally saw and were involved in? Well, we were shelled. <laughs>
1: we were attacked. And it's hard to describe that because people see that on in the movies, they see it uh, online. But when you're actually there and you feel the impact of, um, you know, in our case, one five five artillery rounds, one hundred and twenty millimeter heavy mortars, uh, missile strikes, airstrikes. You know, it's a it's a very profound experience. But miraculously, none of us were killed. Did but, you think you would be? Well, you see. We what would happen typically is a house would be flattened by a missile strike, and we would go and provide security. The engineers would arrive with their um, diesel generators and the big consoles, and they'd cut down through the twisted metal and the and the and, and the rubble. You see it in Ukraine today. You see it after the earthquake in in Turkey and Syria. And then the Red Crescent and the, the our, our our engineer buddies would would pull the bodies out, whole families, you know. And the impact of high explosives in a confined space on the person is burns, limb separation, decapitation, um, in, in cr- grotesque soft tissue injuries. Uh, it, it was just an incredibly distressing uh, experience. And when you, ex- so one of the, the highest risk factors for developing post traumatic stress disorder is to witness the killing of civilians and, and feeling powerless to do anything about it. Uh, it's not necessarily becoming a victim yourself, but you would see that and know. That there, but for the grace of God, go you, because you saw with your own eyes uh, what um, the impact of high explosives will be. On. Does it leave you with a hatred of the Israelis? No, not at all. Israelis are beautiful people. I I spent some time in Israel when I was there. I was in Jerusalem. I was in um, Tiberius. The most beautiful people. Actually, a shopkeeper in Tiberius saw me. I was trying to buy a phone card to call home, and he said, "What are you? What are you buying one of those for? They're very expensive." And he said, where are you calling? And I said, Ireland. And he said, "He said you can use my phone in the back of the shop on one condition. He said that you tell your mother that you love her. So I went into the back of the shop made a call. And when I was making that phone call, I saw a picture of his son on the wall in Israeli military uniform. And his son had been killed in the Golan. Uh, in, he was part of the Golani Brigade. And I realized that when he saw me, he saw his own son. And when he said, tell your mother you love her, you know, now as a parent and as an adult, I really so the but Israeli, how do
0: you square that? The because that they're, b- because they're
1: badly led, they're you know, Hezbollah, the Lebanese people were wonderful people, Israeli people were lovely people, but very badly led. I mean, you see a government in Israel at the moment that are hell bent on ethnically cleansing, um, Palestinians from their from the, and they're sowing the seeds of their own destruction by doing so. And it's a bit like what's happening in Ukraine, you have literally now hundreds, thousands of young Russian men. Uh, being slaughtered at the behest of somebody like Vladimir Putin it's the same story everywhere you go but people people are I would have no issue whatsoever with his Israeli um, citizens and they share exactly the same spectrum of opinion on what what their government does and what their foreign policy consists of so that that was a very that that had a profound impact on me and uh, and I know all, all, all of the other guys and girls that I served with at that time
0: you mentioned his experience and seeing the lost son that he had in, in you and seeing the, the, the death and all around you. I assume that when you left the army, you thought that what is now going to happen is that that kind of experience is behind you. You then, relatively soon after the departure from the army, had what I think is about as, as difficult an experience as anybody can have, which is the loss of your own child. Did any of what you had been through before harden you to be able to cope with that?
1: Well, yeah, so essentially um, I retired from the army in 2000 and in 2003 um, we had a little girl, Leoden, who who unfortunately didn't make it so it was a cord accident at birth and she was a full term. And we, I also lost my mum and I lost a sister also to uh, breast cancer. She was just 42 at around about that time. And my son Owen um, was diagnosed with a neuromuscular disease. So we had a a whole pile of trauma come at the same time and I remember when we were burying Leodin, our little girl, in the graveyard in Glasnevin Cemetery in the Little Angels plot. It was the hardest thing in the world to put your little girl down on the ground and turn around and walk away and leave her there. And that experience was like a lightning rod moment. It connected me back with the experiences I'd had um, in Lebanon and seeing um, Lebanese, you know, people cry, like when the Red Crescent would bring the bodies down to the hospital in Tiffany we'd see the families screaming. And, you know, their, very, their repertoire of communication is much more broader than ours. They express their emotions very, very clearly and explicitly. And it just made me realise what we'd experienced. There's a great book um, called Matterhorn by Carl um, Marlantes, it's a New York bestseller about his experiences in Vietnam and he talks about the exposure to risk but if it's not it, it, that, that produces organic automatic inevitable responses and if you don't deal with those you go on to develop PTSD but it takes about seven years on average for veterans to begin to experience these symptoms when they're visited by other trauma in their life typically and that's what happened to me and, and my family Um but, princip- Anton, I can't emphasise this enough. When I, did, when, I was, when I came back from Lebanon, I did a PhD in the army on my female colleagues. Now, that research revealed shockingly high levels of sexual violence, uh, up to and including rape of my female colleagues. The military authorities reacted very badly to that. They alleged that I'd fabricated the research. They alleged that I had breached the Official Secrets Act, which is a criminal offence, and essentially, in, in today's modern parlance, I got cancelled by my family, my military family. And I am still, 23 years later, even as a senator, I am still cancelled and I still experience reprisal from that community. So I lost my community of support. So when I was in that space of losing my daughter and losing my mum and my sister and my son's diagnosis, I was r- still in the vortex of that campaign of... A very, very vigorous and, and sustained campaign of what we now call whistleblower reprisal against me, and that that really accelerated and compounded compounded the trauma. And uh, can you can you explain to me what how the
0: trauma manifests itself? Because I think anybody who has seen one of their own children born. It is a unique experience, it is a unique emotional catharsis, to, to, and, and there is all that goes before it in terms of the nerves, in terms of the concern, in terms of the hope and all the rest of it. To discover that at the point at which that is what you're expecting, the absolute worst and the absolute opposite happens, how do you process that? What happens to you?
1: So you you begin to develop, well in my case certainly, you, d- you develop very catastrophic um, thought patterns, because the worst the, the the worst possible outcome has happened, and it it then extended to other areas of my life. you know I found myself the subject of such hostility from my former com- comrades with and I'm sorry to say this but with very very few exceptions um so the the symptoms of this are are universal. You know, you become emotionally withdrawn. You may engage in risk taking behaviors. Um, You can abuse alcohol. Um, I would say um, one of the things I did um, was I threw myself into work to try and. So, around about exactly the same time, the United States invaded America. And I began my career then as a a
0: security analyst.
1: Sorry, Iraq, with the Irish Times. So, I started working with the Irish Times as a security analyst. And I was also a full-time lecturer in, in DIT, which is now TU Dublin. So I would get up and do Virgin, what is now Virgin Media TV3 in the morning. I'd get up at half five, go out to TV3, do the morning, then go in and do Morning Ireland. And then I'd go home, get the kids to school, go back in. I'd do Pat Kenny show on RTE sometime between 10 and 12. I'd do the lunchtime news at one and I'd do probably what was then called drive time. And this went on for about uh, a year after the United States invaded Iraq. And and also writing a, a feature article for the Irish Times as a security analyst. So I did what a lot of people do. I just completely and utterly threw myself into work. I think I became emotionally and physically unavailable to my to my family, to my kids. And then I think I had something which would probably be... I, I realise now, and I think back in it, it was probably a panic attack. I, I was going to Brussels for a briefing with NATO and it's a short Aer Lingus flight. I've been in all sorts of aircraft and planes, never gave him a second thought. found it really hard to get on the plane that day. I just was seized with this terrible fear that the plane was going to crash. And I, ha- I forced myself to get onto the plane, went to Brussels, couldn't think of anything while I was there except getting on the plane to come back to Ireland. And I came home and a family member said to me, why are you looking at... Stuff on the internet about aircraft safety, and I explained what had happened, and they said, "You, you need to get. There's nothing wrong with the air, with the wings or the cockpit or the engines. It's your head. You need to get it sorted out." So I did get some really, really good uh, support and counselling. So basically, what had been an untreated series of traumas, um, I, I got a very, very skillful therapist. Um, Actually, based in Northern Ireland, who'd have been very experienced of dealing with trauma from people who had been in the Royal Ulster Constabulary or the UDR or the British Army, and I, th- this guy was absolutely incredible. It was an amazing, and it just turned everything around. And, and, and I would you... say to I would say to anybody listening, you know, don't be hard on yourself. If, you know, seek help, seek support if you need it.
0: And what do you do now in 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 reflection around Lia? Then, like, do you because 2003? So she would now have been 19. She'd be 20. She'd be 20. 20 this year. Do you think on that? Do you, do you see the those landmarks pass? Do Do you push to the back of your mind? Yeah, you got. We got. We got. We have
1: four four kids. Darrow's 22. He's. And um, finally, your UCD of my own is 21, my, my wheelchair man, who's up in DBS down the road, living his best life. Uh, Alva, who's 18, doing her leaving cert to my youngest house. So you, life goes on. You, nobody gives you a pass or a break or says, oh, you lost a baby girl or, oh, your your mum died or, oh, your son is sick. Uh, take a week off. That doesn't happen. You've got to pay the mortgage. You've got to keep going. So, of course... I had to process the grief of Leoden in a different way to her mum in that, um, you know, I'd lie beside her, feeling her kicks. Um, so I didn't know her in the way that, uh, you know, not having carried her to to to, to birth. But, you know, I had a, a very close... Uh, you know, when we buried her, um, you know, her mum was, was producing breast milk and it was just the most... For long, the sad it just I can't. It was just the, the most the hardest thing ever. Uh, I I've nothing against which to compare it. But a couple of years later, I was up. I was up in Dit, and we do the graduation ceremonies in in St Patrick's Cathedral. And I was up as part of the academic procession, and we were up at the top looking down at all the parents and the graduates. And the president of Dit called forward a graduation class. They were mostly young women you know, 19, 20, 21 years old. And they all came up the centre of St. Patrick's Cathedral in their gowns and in all their finery. And you could smell the perfume coming up and the parents were all, you could f- hear the intake of breath. And I was looking at them and I realised in that moment that my little girl, Leoden, would wouldn't I realised what I'd lost, lost. So it kind of revisits you at times like that. And I found it really hard that day to kind of just contain the emotion and... So what I take from it is just to try and make make the most of the time I have with my kids. <laughs> I'm sure they, yeah, you know, they they love it. Uh, and to try and be kind to people because you, you just don't know when you meet people what, what struggles they're going through. Well,
0: that's the thing that I was, There's a, a, I remember years ago watching um, David Letterman interview that the singer Warren Zevon, and at the time Zevon was, he was uh, diagnosed with terminal lung cancer. And um, Letterman asked him, from the perspective that you now have, do you see the world any differently than the rest of us might and what's the advice that you get? I think from the perspective that you describe, from both the the spectrum of things that you have done, because you're now in the Senate, you've been a journalist, you've been a security analyst, you've been a a military officer, you've been in in conflict zones and the kind of private experience and family experience that you have both with Lee and with your, um, as you describe your your son, your wheelchair man about whom you spoke so much in the the campaign for the um, Senate. Have you a different perspective on things? Have you an insight that you think other
1: people should have? Well, I think, um, I, I hope that um, I'm... I, so, I, when, when Owen had his diagnosis, uh, it's very difficult in Ireland to have a disability. If you're a disabled citizen in Ireland, you are, and I'm going to say, uh, uh, the word, I can't say it on air, but basically Ireland is one of the worst countries in the European Union to have a disability. And I didn't realise it, but that made me very angry. And I was I was carrying a lot of anger, and so I've tried to convert that anger and frustration into positive action, and that's 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 not easy. So Owen and myself are a team. He's my campaign manager. He's twenty one now. He's up in college in second year. We worked together on on the campaign, and we did it as a kind of a social experiment to see could we raise awareness about the issue of disability rights, and. Uh, and lo- miraculously, we got elected last year on the by-election. So the seat was vacated by Ivana Bacic when she was elected to Dublin Bay South. And we didn't think we'd be elected, but I got in. And so I've been trying to use the time in Leinster House <laughs> for as long as it lasts. And, you know, I got in on such a narrow margin. I've no, I have no idea whether I'd ever be re-elected. But while I'm in there, I'm determined to do something that is measurable and positive as it applies to... Our citizens with disabilities, and I have I I have a couple of things in train in in that regard.
0: Well, we will watch this space, Senator Tom Clonan. Thank you very much. Thank you. The hard shoulder with Kieran Cuddihy
1: with Nissan
0: weekdays from four on News Talk.